bit about what that's about, after50.com. Uh, we have the opportunity, have been asked to partner with the churches in our association, North Jefferson Baptist Association, and they've been working really, really hard for this um, that is going to take place. You could kind of look at this like a harvest crusade, uh, where each church will be challenged to go out into its community surrounding the church, and then we're going to be inviting all the unchurched to uh, the uh, stadium there at Mormon Jordan High School and uh, to come and hear the gospel. So this is an excellent opportunity uh, to reach out to your lost neighbor, to your unchurched neighbor, to family members, to friends. It'll give us that opportunity to do so. Now, I was going to say that the reason they had to use an Alabama football player is they couldn't get an Auburn one scheduled for that time, but then I knew some smart aleck Alabama fan would say they couldn't find a saved Auburn football player. So anyway, I'll leave that alone, right? Uh, but it is going to be an awesome opportunity uh, for those who normally would not maybe come to a church, but the first step is God may get them in a football stadium where they go every week during the football season or have no problem with going to, and it may be where they're willing to come there, possibly to hear some guy that uh, played uh, for uh, the University of Alabama, and they might be open to that, and God may stir their heart and move their hearts. So mark your calendars for that, 9-16-2018, and uh, 49 days before that, will be an intense time to where we're going to be asking volunteers to come together to bathe that in prayer. There also will be opportunity, if you'll mark your calendar, for July the 26th, okay? We're all to do the work of an evangelist and be a witness, but I'm going to ask some of you to, to pray, get along with the Spirit, and see if the Spirit tells you to be a part of this training. But on July the 26th at High Point Community Church, which is in our neck of the woods over here in Corner, for Pastor Joey Hill, who spoke here before, there will be a training at his church. So if you want to help that night at this event, be available for people who will come to uh, receive Christ or people who will come and need counsel and be prayed for. Uh, if you'll make plans on July the 26th to be at High Point Community Church, and if before then you will let me know. If you would just send me an email or send me a text, let me know after the service today. Uh, if you'll just let me know that you want to be a part of that, uh, and if I don't hear from certain ones of you, I'll be calling you, okay? Because I know God's already wired you for it, and I know your heartbeat for it. So let me know that, and then for those of you that I may not know or have acquaintances with or those that have never been outside the four walls with us to do some of the evangelism ministry that we do, please let me know. Give me your name and number, uh, and uh, let me know your desire in that, and I'll give you more details about that. Well, welcome to the house of the Lord. I do want to add my word of welcome to the guests. I, I tell you, one thing that really uh, was encouraged my spirit this morning was seeing in the middle of the summer, because uh, summers can be so crazy and hectic, but seeing the number of family, guest families that I saw. And what was cool about it is, uh, Pastor Henry, is I didn't just see them coming for the 1030 worship. I saw them showing up early to find a Sunday school class in a small group community. And that, can we give God glory for that? Because that's, that's good stuff. And so uh, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. We've been in this series, and we're just slowly making our way through the first 10 verses. And so my goal, uh, Lord willing, is we're going to get through verse 10 uh, this morning uh, with this text, but we want to be sensitive to the Spirit. And we've been talking about this concept, the literal takeaway. And as I thought about the takeaway that we've kind of been saturating ourselves in this, the Spirit of God said to me, I believe it'll take a little better if we saturate ourselves in it, if we saturate ourselves in the Word of God. And that's what we're doing in First Thessalonians uh, over the summer and then be moving into Second Thessalonians. I felt freedom from the Spirit to do that. And so the takeaway is real faith will be exemplified in the life of real followers. Now, everybody will if you'll work with me. Everybody say exemplified. That's a key word. 
That is a key word. It's a big word. It's a thing. Uh, it's a word that Paul saw in the life of the believers at Thessalonica. And this was a young church. So we find Paul on his second missionary journey. Acts chapter 17 talks about it. And we find him going to this church to encourage this church to tell them what he's noticed. And also to obviously exhort this church and the concerns that he sees going on around them to help uh, keep them to help them see the word of God and what God says and staying on focus to defend his own self as an apostle and his ministry and those around him. Uh, and, and then also to uh, keep the uh, people focused on the main thing. And the main thing that he wanted the people to focus on was the return of Jesus Christ. That the Lord Jesus Christ was coming back. See, have you ever noticed this even in your own personal walk with the Lord if you're a believer here today? Have you ever noticed the difference that accountability makes in your life in living for the Lord? You ever notice that? God uses accountability in our life. It may be another brother in Christ that sends that text when you need it and you're struggling. It may be another sister in Christ that says, hey, just wanted to check on you. I hadn't seen you in a little while. It may be that small group Sunday school teacher that says, hey, I hadn't seen you in a little while. we still got a place for you. We love you. It, it may be the own accountability that the Spirit uses in the Word of God to say, look, look, you've been in this thing long enough that you shouldn't need somebody else even to spur you on. The Word of God should be doing the spurring in your heart so you can spur others on. So you got the, the Spirit holds you accountable. People hold us accountable. God uses all those things for His glory. And that's what was happening in the life of, of the Thessalonica, the believers there at Thessalonica. But the main thing that Paul deals with over this whole book in 1 Thessalonians, and then even gets into it in 2 Thessalonians dealing with, is that the greatest accountability that we have for believers in what we do and the greatest motivation, you know what it is? It's the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming by. That's, that's a thing that should motivate us to what? To stay on course. To, to remember who we are living for because who we are living for is who we are going to be living with for eternity. And the opportunity we're given in this short time, in our dash, between our start and our ending date, in our dash, the opportunity that we are given during this time to fulfill the Great Commission, we will celebrate what we do with that. We will celebrate the life change for that. And we will give an account for what we do with that in our personal lives. So we need to get, take that serious. We need to say, God, may we live a life, may it be an uh, exemplified life that we are real followers. And so we pick up today, we've been looking at realities in the life of, of real followers of Jesus Christ. And so we continue working our way through to look at those. And uh, I want to give you, um, we said the first reality was this, that real faith will be recognizable. It, it'll be recognizable. And so this is proof. Paul, this was recognizable in the life of the people, so Paul spent three weeks there encouraging them, preaching the word of God. He had just left Philippi, and so he said, I have recognized your faith, that your faith is real. I have recognized that even though you guys, the majority of you are young, I have recognized that you're, you're growing in your sanctification. You're moving in the right direction. You're not stopped. You're not settled. But as always, and always we see the word of God in the apostles, there's always that reminder of exhortation that says, now don't, don't get inward focused. Don't start arguing with one another. Let your faith not only be recognizable, but second reality, let your faith, real faith will be relational, he says with them, and deals with them on that. And so he, he reminded them, you are loved by God. Now here's one thing that Paul is trying to address in these first three verses in this text that we all need to understand and realize that it'll change every part of our life if we can get this and understand it. What Paul wants our relationship to be like with the Lord Jesus Christ and what God wants our relationship to be like with 
with one another and what the relationship should look like in our marriage and our family and to our neighbors should look like the beautiful picture of the relationship of the Trinity. That's what you'll see throughout the Word of God. Jesus prayed it that we would be one as He and who were one? As He and the Father were one. Not as He and the world were one. Why? Because He's not one with the world. And Paul is exhorting these believers to remind them, and we see it all through Scripture, is you're not left on this earth to be one with the world. You're not left on this earth to be cool in worldly ways in the ways you look. You're not left on this earth that the world dictates who you are or what you do or what your family does. You're left on this earth because the Spirit of God within you dictates who you are and how you are to live because that's what God wants for every family. That's what God wants for every believer. And so he said real faith will be relational. And then third, we looked at uh, real faith will be responsive, responsive to the gospel, responsive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we hammered that last week. So now we continue this morning working our way through where Paul had to say to these believers and look at everything that he had to say and then look at our own lives as Christ followers. And not just individually. I, I pray you'll get this. I think we should look first and foremost at our lives individually as followers, but then we should also look at our life as the faith family in the body of Christ collectively. That's what the intention of God's Word is. That's what the intention of Paul is for us to learn here. And so as we look at these realities, and so we need to take them to heart. And so uh, let me remind you of the three God-given essentials before we get into these next three and point them out in these verses. The three God-given essentials that Paul observed in the life of these faithful young believers uh, here in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through 10. And before we look at the three essentials, I want to take you back to verse 1 and 2, especially 2, and see who Paul gives thanks to for all that he had observed in the life of these believers who were exemplified, uh, that, that they had real faith. Look back at verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to know right out of the gate in verse 1, he's establishing the spiritual authority that is addressing the church. All through Scripture, you'll find the spiritual authority that addresses the church is a, is a group of elders. It's a group of spiritual elders that is always addressing the church. We have prayed, we have sought hard, we are still working hard to be as biblical as we can be to what the Word of God says that a church should be. And so you'll find that it's always a group uh, of elders that is addressing the church. And so he does that, and he says to the church, Thessalonica, uh, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now he says, look at verse 2. We give thanks to who? To God. Always for all of you, constantly, praying without ceasing, as Paul says. And we get into chapter 5 uh, in verse 17. Praying without ceasing, mention you in all of our prayers, showing that we should be a praying church. We should be led by praying elders, and we should be a praying church. Uh, over the body of Christ. And so he gets in here and he gives thanks to God. Now why is it so important that we realize that we give thanks where thanks is due and that he thanked God for the work that is being done in the believers at Thessalonica because God is the one who made it possible for them to possess these three qualities. Why is that so important? Because if we don't understand this, man can have these same qualities of faith, hope, and love but it not be God-ordained. I'm going to give you an example of that. But Paul is addressing the believers there, and he said there's these three essentials of faith, that their God-given faith produced work, but it was God-given. That's why it produced the work that brought honor and glory to God. 
Across our nation sit a lot of churches, and they call themselves a church, but it's not a God-given faith, hope, and love that they are exercising in through their lives and through the church. And so God's not getting honor and glory for it. And so he's saying these, this is a God-given faith that produced work. Now, notice, notice this. It's a God-given love that produced labor, and their God-given hope produced steadfastness and endurance. And so this is important because a non-believer can have a type of faith. A non-believer can have a hope. And a non-believer can have a love, but it's not the spiritual faith. It's not the spiritual hope. It's not the spiritual love that brings glory to God. For instance, think with me for a minute on this. A non-believer can have a faith in him or herself that produces hard work. Is this not true? Are there not non-believers that you work with and that you serve with? That, that it produces in them um, a, a, a desire, a faith that produces in them hard work? Yes. They can have a love for their family that produces a labor to earn food, to provide for their family. And they can have a hope for victory or personal worldly success that produces an endurance that causes them to strive to finish. So these are qualities that we see that can be above non-believers, but they're not God-ordained. Because whose benefit are they being used for? Whose building up are they being used for? That individual. Because they're building their own empire. Now the sad commentary is that sometimes you can't look inside the church and tell who's who because there's too many inside the church living in these man-made produce faith, hope, and love and it's all for themselves rather than the kingdom of God. So the healthy church is not the church that all looks good and pats each other on the shoulder and makes sure their attire looks the best in the world and then they're living for themselves. The healthy church is the one who comes and says, God, it's your produced faith, it's your produced love, it's your produced hope, and may it all be used for your glory. And God says, I can honor that, I can bless that. And that's why he was blessing the church at Thessalonica. See, because there is no eternal value to the non-believer's faith, hope, and love is what Paul is getting at. And if you really study the difference, there's no eternal value to that. This type of faith, hope, and love that the Christ followers at Thessalonica had was a spiritual, God-honoring faith, hope, and love, and it was centered on Christ. Now look at verse 3, and you'll see all this come together. Remembering before our God and Father, there's the thanks, your work of faith and labor of love, and I love this word. We, the Spirit of God has been settling this word in my spirit. On Wednesday nights, we've been talking about it in James Talked about it a little bit last Sunday. But notice this next word. And everybody say steadfastness. Steadfastness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I, here's where God wants to get us in our faith. He wants to get us steadfast in our faith. Because when you are steadfast in your faith, you're going to make it. But the question we need to ask ourselves what is holding us? What, like, like what? We know Jesus holds us when he washes and we're in relationship with him. But what is keeping the want to and the have to in us to serve Christ to where we are doing it for God's glory? It'll be steadfastness. What gets us through the storm? What gets us through the trial? What gets us through burying the one closest to us and then God using that for his glory as he's doing the life of a friend of mine as painful as it is because what gets us through that is, is our steadfast. We sang about it. Christ, the rock, the solid rock, the cornerstone. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is with us through that hardest time and he is making us more steadfast in him. 
saying that I've been through it. I've been through the hardest of times, Jesus says. He can sympathize and empathize with us as Hebrews talks about because we have a great high priest and we can go to him. And so we see verse 3, all of this coming together, but there's a steadfastness there. And the challenge that I would ask you as the Spirit has asked me, is there a steadfastness in my personal faith? Smoke rise, is there a steadfastness for the things of God and for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God in the life of this church? Because God doesn't need a lot. He's always used a minority and a remnant. And as long as that minority and remnant was faithful to him and the things he wanted, God has to bless that church. He has to bless it. But God wants a healthy church. And God wants a holy church. He's not impressed by what we wear. He's not impressed by what we drive. He's not impressed with how much of this book we know if it's knowledge that puffs up and not love that gets us out to the lost and dying world. That's thus saith the Lord. That's the word of God. And so Paul said, I'm seeing this. Now look at the fourth reality. Real faith will be reflective. Look at verse 5b, the latter part. I'll take you back to verse 5. And then through verse 8 we'll look at. He says in verse 5, um, uh, b there, he says, in, the, in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now he says, look at this. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. <laughs> you know what men. Why is that important? It's important because it had begun to be questioned, and here's the mistake, and young believers make it, and believers that should be seasoned make it because they're not growing in the truth of the Lord. But they had begun a little bit to entertain their ears to false things that were being said that might have looked true about Paul and the apostles. But there was no certainty in those things. It was perception and assumption, and so he has to address it. And he says, I want you to know something. You know what kind of men we proved to be among your sake. The record speaks for itself. The record speaks that we had no ill motive. Paul said it in his life elsewhere. The record speaks that I'm not a money-hungry man or a money-hungry leader, but the record also speaks that there should be honor shown to those who are called to the vocational ministry of God. But in Paul's time and in Paul's choosing, Paul said, but God's given me a platform to be a tent maker, a leather maker, and I'm going to use that platform for his glory. And he's going to allow me to meet people like Aquila and Priscilla and different ones, and God's going to use that for his glory. So thankful Paul realized who he was in Christ because of his encounter with Christ, and then the calling on his life to be an elder, even though he was a tent maker, even though in his business, you see. God can do that. We're so far from the Bible that we think today that the only way a guy can serve the Lord, even as a layman, as an elder in his church, and, and actually own another business is, is, is that he can't do that unless he leaves that business to come and do what I'm doing. And that's not biblical. You won't find it in the Bible. You'll find where these guys right here, they were just serving the Lord. Why? Not because somebody else put the calling on them or somebody else thought they should be it. It's because the Spirit of God set them apart for it and internally called them to spiritually lead His church. That's the way the Bible is. That's how you find it in the Word of God. And so it's the Spirit doing the work. So the real faith will be reflective. The apostles' faith was reflecting who? Jesus Christ. That's who our faith should reflect. The Thessalonians' faith, now note this, this is interesting. But when things are in order, as God calls them to be in order, you'll see a beautiful picture of representation in this. The word actually is called imitate. 
It's called imitate. Not imitational, not fake, but imitate in a good way. And so the first Thessal- in, in Thessalonians, we see that the faith was reflecting the apostles' faith. The believers, their faith was reflecting the apostles' faith. And since the apostles' faith was the real faith and was the real deal, and it was in the biblical order of God in leading the churches and addressing the churches, they, the Thessalonians were reflecting who? Christ. Do y'all see the order here? Do y'all see the order that is given? Do you see that there has to be order in your life? There has to be union in your life with God the Father, God the Son, the God the Holy Spirit. For your relationships to be healthy, your relationships need to look like a picture of the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God has always had an order. He's always had an order, and he's always been. And he started his order for us and what he ordained as the family in the garden when he gave, when God created man, and then he gave woman to man to be a helpmate. That's an order. It's an order no matter how much our government might want to get away from and not call it what God's called it. It's an order that no matter how much people want to get away from it and maybe tend to tiptoe around it and give the authority elsewhere, it's a God-given order. With the same way for the second institution that he ordained the church. There's a God-given order. And God blesses God-given order, church. And so the Thessalonians, they were reflecting Christ. Now, 1 Corinthians 11:1 1 says this, You are to imitate me, uh, Paul says, as I imitate Christ. Now, this is very important. This is very important. Paul said, you are to imitate me, not elevate me. What's the difference? He said, you are to imitate me as I imitate Christ, but you don't elevate me as you elevate Christ. Why? Because there is no other person like the Lord Jesus Christ. And any other person you elevate, including me, I can assure you, will disappoint you. Will, will, will fail you, is capable of falling as other great men of God and biblical leaders did. So you don't elevate man, but you can imitate a man who is sold out for Jesus, walking in for Jesus. Because why? Because he's imitating Christ. But you just got to make sure you don't ever elevate that man so that when that man falls in his humanity or that man in his charisma is living a lie, that you put your eyes more on him elevating him than you have putting your eyes on elevating Jesus who will never leave you nor forsake you. And there's too many today that have put their eyes on man to elevate man that when that man falls because of the sinful pressures that are on everybody, they no longer want to serve the Lord. Well, they no longer want to go to church. Well, guess what? The church was not that man's. The church is the living Lord Jesus' church. And so, and so Lord will work through that and he'll say, okay, okay, don't elevate them. It's okay to imitate them, but don't elevate them. Don't elevate them because they're not Jesus. Fifth reality, real faith will be revering. Look at verse 9. You see this great revering. When I say revering, we're talking about respect here. But let me back back up here to verse 6. He says, and you became imitators. Everybody say imitators. So we've said exemplifying. How do we, how do we become uh, exemplary Christians? How do we exemplify? How, do, how are we recognized for our true faith that real followers exemplify? Uh, real faith is exemplified in their life of real followers by becoming imitators. And of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes, as hard as this is to say for even me being so blessed, and we even celebrate our freedom and thank God for it, the freedom we have in this country, but I think sometimes we might need a little affliction to make us more dependent on God rather than dependent on ourselves. 
And so the early church, they had faced this, the early church at Thessalonica. And so it drove them to God. It didn't drive them away. And it even produced a joy that James talks about in, John chapter, in James chapter 1. He says, so that, verse 7, you became an example. There it is. You're an exemplifying church. You're being an example. When we go on and speak to other churches, we can talk about the church in Thessalonica and what God is doing. That you're yielding yourself to the Holy Spirit, that God is strengthening the church because of your willingness to yield yourself to the Spirit, and it's bringing honor and glory to God. He says, he says look at this. He says, um, he says that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Now, we get to uh, verse 8 here. Let me, close, let me close verse 8 out for this section. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in who, church? Not yourself. Not your pretty buildings. Not your pretty little outfits. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. <laughs> we need not say anything. It's evident. That you're like you're sold out for Jesus. You're not perfect, but you're sold out, and you realize my God's left you on this earth, and God's going to turn your city upside down because you're living for His glory, not yourself. And I'm telling you, just like God took twelve old ignorant, unordinary uh, fishermen, the Bible talks about that literally they wasn't well trained, they wasn't well educated. He turned the world upside down because they turned their life over to God. And don't think he can't do it in good old Warrior and Hayden and that corner Alabama and wherever you're from. He just needs some devoted people who realize the reason God's left them on this earth. He just needs a devoted church just like this. If he can do it in Thessalonica, he can do it today. And he wants to. I believe that with all my heart. And so they, the real faith, look at this, in verse 9, was revering. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God. From idols to serve the living and true God. Now, so real faith will be revering in the life of a real follower. It'll be exemplified. It, it'll show. So the reception of the apostles came from the people because they had respected, they respected and revered the Holy Spirit who had convicted them and was speaking to them. That's why when Paul gave to give his defense of himself, which we'll get in weeks down the road, and he came to give a defense of himself because of the false teachers, you know what he said? You know what kind of people we were. But here's the deal. He wasn't trying to have to convince them personally himself. He knew the Spirit of God was already at work in them to convince them. And you'll know, if you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, you'll know when the Spirit of God is at work. The Bible even says that as believers in Christ, our spirits will do what with one another, church? Say it louder. They will do what with one another? They will bear witness with one another. Your spirit will bear witness with one another. I have met people that I did not know at all. And within 10 minutes, I knew them. I knew I was in union with them. Why? Because the Spirit of God in me was bearing witness with the Spirit of God in them. And that same Spirit of God within you will produce a love in you if it's God-honoring that you can meet somebody who you don't know. You can meet somebody who's a non-believer. And if that love produces through you like God has it for you and reminds you of His grace He had on you when you didn't have it all together, that same love will be produced through you to a non-believer and it'll be evident it's a real love. It'll be evident it's a real love. That's what our lost and dying neighbors are needing. That's what they need. They don't need a bigger house. They don't need a newer lawnmower. 
They don't need the greatest technology or device on their hand to bring them temporary pleasure. They need the Spirit of the living God, and they need salvation, and eternity depends on it with what they do, with the gospel. And so Thessalonian believers had got convicted about that and were beginning to reach out, and, 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 and things were beginning to happen. Why? Because they respected God. They had that reverential fear that we talk about. They had the fear of the Lord in a reverential way, respectful way, and God led them, and it began to, they began to increase in wisdom and knowledge, as Proverbs 1-7 says. Your spirit will bear witness with other believers' spirit because the Holy Spirit who unites you together is what Paul's trying to teach here. And that's true. Sixth and final reality, real faith will be rewarded. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, and to wait, everybody say wait, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus is his name, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, Real faith will be rewarded is what Paul's trying to encourage the people with here. You're not doing this in vain. He'd already dealt with the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, I'll go back to tent making full time. If there's no climax and conclusion at the end that death, hell, and the grave are conquered, and part of the conquering is, is that not only was Christ raised, those who are in him and with him will be raised too. That are the change you want to if you're not living for the king. That are the change you pay up in your step to live for Jesus and to serve Jesus and to serve the Lord and to serve in his, in his church. And so he says this, when Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica, he proclaimed that Christ who had come to earth the first time would come again. That's what he's saying. He's coming again. And, and guess who he's going to come back to get? Those of you that have turned from idol worship, those of you that have responded to the drawing and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and no matter the cost, you know who you're living for. You know whose kingdom you're living for. Here's the question. Does God know whose kingdom you're living for and that I'm living for? And can I tell you something? When he comes back to answer that, he's not going to say, let me see your church attendance. He's just not, okay? He, he's not going to say, show me your seat, because nobody owns one in his church, Amen. By the way, the Spirit probably wants to see you more out of your seat than he wants to see you in it when you're in the church. Just a thought. Just a thought. When it comes to praying, when it comes to serving, when it comes to using those gifts that he's given you if you're a believer, if you're here and you don't know him, I promise you he wants to see you out of the seat of your own selfish heart this morning, turning your life over to him and giving your heart to Jesus. It's just his heartbeat. So the converts in this town were to what? Were to wait for them. We're to wait for him, wait for Jesus. They had turned from unbelief, unbelief invisible idols, to an invisible God. Paul, Paul, um, Paul urged them to wait with the assurance that they would see their Lord and Savior, God in the flesh, face to face. Now, all over the world, people choose to put their hope in something, do they not? Yes. Pagan gods, idol worship, worship of themselves, man-made religion, but, call, but Paul's commending the remnant of faithful believers at Thessalonica because they have put their faith in Jesus Christ, the one true God, and he's telling them, you can rest assured he's coming. He's coming back. He's coming back. Not only would he come for them, but notice this as the band moves in place. What else would he do? He would deliver them from the wrath to come. Paul deals with this, and then on the Isle of Patmos, 
John, the only surviving apostle that did not die as a martyr, God put him on the God put him on the Isle of Patmos. God put him on the Isle of Patmos. Why? To write the book of Revelation. And on the Isle of Patmos, here's what he said in Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Who's he saying that to? <laughs> to the remnant. To the believers in Thessalonica. To those believers that were scattered when the persecution came against the early church in the book of Acts. To the faithful remnant at Smoke Rise who said, God, I don't know always what's going on, but I know you and my faith is not in man. My faith is in you alone and I'm going to serve you to the day you call me home with integrity. That's who he's talking about. The, the true followers who exemplify real faith that are real followers. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, steadfastness, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now I want to ask you a question as you bow your head and you close your eyes. Do you know why Satan would love to silence the emphasis of the return of Jesus Christ? Do you know why Satan doesn't want you focused on the return of Jesus Christ? Because he knows it's the hope. He knows that the, the hope of Christ's return is one of the greatest motivations for Christian service and sacrifice. And so therefore, notice how rarely will you think about the end of time. Rarely will you think about the day that death approaches your life and door. You say, now, Pastor, you wigging me out if you like to think about death and you like to think about the end of time. Well, the reason I think about the end of time is twofold. Number one, there is no end in time for me because my soul will live forever and I will be with Jesus. And I can't help but think about that day. And the second part of that is, is it reminds me that there are people in my family, there are people on my street, there are people in this community, there are people that you work with, there are people at the local grocery stores, and they do not know the Lord, and they will not live with Him forever. And they need to know that He's going to return one day. And God help us, if the church is not focused on His return as we should be, how in God's name do we think a lost person's going to be motivated to repent of their sin when they don't see it in our life that we're living for Him, looking forward to His return? serving Him, sacrificing, so that the sanctification of the whole person, the whole being, spirit, soul, and body consists in actively awaiting for Jesus to return. He who testifies of these says, and this is what Revelation says, surely I am coming soon, amen. And the people say what? Come, Lord Jesus. Eagerly awaiting, eyes fixed toward the eastern sky. So in our time of response, here's some questions for us personally. And I please take play, you'll take these to heart. Number one, ask yourself this. Is my faith recognizable? Is my faith in Jesus Christ recognizable? And I would say this first and foremost. We should ask that in a way that says, is my faith recognizable to those closest to me that know me the best? Is my faith 
God-ordained, God-honoring faith recognized by my spouse. I didn't say you had to be perfect. I didn't say if you followed on the way to church this morning that you can't have a God-ordained faith. But a God-ordained faith will lead you to reconciling with others that, and repenting. Is your faith recognizable? Is your faith relational? Is your faith responsive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Is your faith reflective of these that live for Christ and were willing to die as martyrs for Christ because of persecution? If that type of persecution came against you and in our country, would our faith reflect the martyrs who proved they were not living for themselves? Is your faith revering? Like, do you, do, you, do you fear God so much in a holy way that it absolutely, the fear of God, the thought, the thought of you not meeting with God or the thought of you not meeting with God's people over a month without a valid reason, the fear of God would bring you back into being. Not because of legalism, but because you fear God so much of what he's ordained in the family and in the church that it would you would respond to the spirit and be drawn back to showing that reverence that fear that personal intimate worship you would have to be navigating you'd have to get back to God because of the the fear the holy fear and then last are you living with a confidence that your faith will be rewarded are you looking forward to Christ's return are you motivated by it? Or have you become complacent, maybe misdirected, as we've all done before? Our focus is not on the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus had to remind us. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33. All is righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Your faith will be God-ordained faith. Your labor will be God-ordained labor that leads to the truth true biblical love, the true point in the fellowship for one another. And then your hope will not be in the things that you possess and the things you're working for, spending all your time building for. Your thing, your hope will be in the assured hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as the song says, oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness and mercy was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Do you know him today in your heart, not just in your mind? Do you know, is the living God living inside of you, dear friend? Is he Can I tell you something? He was living in me just as much as a six-year-old boy when I responded to the Spirit as he is living in me today. But, I'm living more for him today than I was as a six and seven year old boy. So if you got him, he's in you. And he's faithful to always be in you. But how faithful are you being since he called you to him? And if he had and, and if he's calling you today and you've never responded and given your life to him, I, I tell you what, you do as that little young boy did in my office on Wednesday afternoon. You confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is who Jesus is and who God said he was. And you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he'll save you. So right there in your own way, just tell him however you want to do it. Say, dear God in heaven, I know that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. 
And I'm so sorry for all my sins. I confess them all. And I confess you as the Lord and Savior of my life and will follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Now for those that know him, but this message has stirred your heart. Because like me, there's been times you've gotten distracted. There's been times you're living more for yourself than you're living for the king. There's been more times that you got in your own mind trying to figure out what's going around you rather than going to the Word and living your life for the glory of God, no matter how other people are living theirs. If that's you, you just tell him something like this. Say, dear God in heaven, forgive me for trusting in me. Forgive me for listening to man above you. Forgive me for looking for the counsel in other places besides going first and foremost to your word so that my spirit could bear witness with any other counsel. Lord, may your word be the blueprint for my life personally. Lord, may I be, may I exemplify you in my personal walk. And God, I'm making my commitment to you to be the, the, top, of, the top of church member, the top of brother or sister in Christ to my brothers and sisters here that you desire for me to be for your glory so that your church can be what you desire for it to be for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said? Amen. Stand all over the building. The altar's open. If we can pray with you, you come. Whatever God lays on your heart and spirit with how the word affected you, make an altar somewhere. He tells you to sing, sing. But I tell you, singing's a lot better when you confess first your faults. That's where revival comes. So let's be obedient, church. Let's sing. Henry, you leave.